This podcast, produced by 18 to 25 year olds, was entirely recorded in the year of 2020 over Zoom calls, down the phone, and through WhatsApp voice messages. For this reason alone, audio quality may vary. Enjoy the ride. This is the Higher You're listening to the Higher Frequency, a podcast by Youth Music in partnership with Notion. My name is Jade, and in this episode of The Higher Frequency, we're going to be looking at genre, stereotyping, and how music can form a sense of community. I'll be looking at drill music through the eyes of a genre-blending jazz drill duo from South London, two up-and-coming drill rappers, and a youth worker who's been representing drill music up in Parliament. Later on, Alice Reid, our correspondent in Manchester, will be focusing on another misunderstood genre, underground dance music. She'll be shining a light on three Manchester-based DJ collectives who are putting the community at the forefront, positively contributing to the scene through DJ workshops, open decks and fundraising live streams. I'll never forget the first time I listened to Drill. It was like a crazy reality check. I could actually say that I've lived the life that some Drill artists rap about in their songs. When I first heard a dual track from 6-7, it was exciting. It was fresh, it gassed me up. It spoke about the real life of youths that come from South London, where I'm from. But where did drill come from? To find out more, I spoke to Kieran Fapper, a writer and youth worker who has done a lot of work in building the community through his programme Roadworks. He has been starting conversations with young drill artists to explore the context around drill. Drill music came from Chicago, the south side of Chicago, where lots of different changes have happened over a few decades to mean that the experience of being an impoverished young black man have changed drastically compared to even 10, 15 years ago. Lots of the gang identities have split up, housing projects have been knocked down in the south side, and of course social media has come. So it it came from um, a, a very violent context in the south side of Chicago, but also all of those changes going on as well. So the music kind of came out of that. After Chicago and it landing in London, I think there was a certain level of we can relate to this culture that they're experiencing. I mean, all over London, there's comparable elements to south side of Chicago in terms of poverty, in terms of sort of racial inequality, in terms of how schools are ran, etc. In South London, I think it, it's become a voice. The music speaks to a certain pain and certain trauma and certain experience of life that's very difficult. But how much is Joel shaped by the community that we come from? Relly and Crystal are two of my good mates and they both happen to be sick upcoming jewel artists. Do you think your music represents your community? Like, would you say the ends shaped your music? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, everything. The ends, environment household, everything, to be honest, like, it's all put into my, my bars and how I spit and how I rap and what I rap about. Like, I think that's the way to get things across for me personally, yeah. definitely. Like, if I don't want to speak about it and I hear a beat and I hear words in it, I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm putting on that beat. So, yeah, definitely shaped it. I don't know, like, it was shaped by my community, I would say, because, mm. like, there's a lot of different households that go through the exact same thing. Yeah. But, like, let's say these two are going through the same thing, but they would never know because they don't talk. Like, they talk, they're friends, but they don't verbally speak about what they're going through. Mm. And 
music for me growing up it was like a coping mechanism do you know what i mean instead of turning to you know that that rubbish i was listening to music like big people music from when i was young like all them the biggie the two packs the the lauren hills do you know what i mean mm. all, all of them lot i was listening to one of the big things for me i think i always like if i'm doing anything i always said like i want to go back into like my community like schools in my area or wherever i can mm. and just give words of advice because I know how it can be. Growing up is mad, you know what I'm trying to say? If no one's actually looking out for you or mm. trying to put you in certain positions, yeah. then you've got to do it. Yeah. You've got to do it all yourself, mm. is what I'm trying to say. So I know that if I can go back into certain communities and schools and things and workshops, whatever, do you know what I mean? Just to give that word and give that connection. Yeah. That's all it is. Everyone needs a connection. Everyone needs that a place and a stepping stool to go onto you. So yeah, if I can, then I will. Mm. Um, whether I can or can't, some way, mm. I'm going to invest mm. into a lot of youth clubs and give them more protection and more stability and more security. Mm. Like what Reddy said, yeah. go back into schools <laughs> and local schools and that in your community where you grew up. It's just like it shows that you don't have to become a statistic. Mm. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah. You can move and grow past what... But Jill also has a lot of negative associations. Lyrics brag of dripping, cheffing and splashing rivals, all slang for stabbing. Nihilistic fetishisation of violence. Gangs posting videos and music online that document, encourage and glamorise violence. Cost the lives of dozens of young black men. And the repercussions can be deadly. I turn to Kieran to find out why these negative associations persist. Well, the obvious reason is because it's very, very provocative, violent. It has a lot of potential for misogyny. It's talking about some of the most awful and shocking aspects of British life, I would say. You know, descriptions of trap houses and illegal activity and really bloody violence. Like Those, those things aren't pleasant to listen to. And I, and I think, therefore, if you don't have context for it and you don't have a reference point to understand it in a bit more of a sort of all right, let me take this in without just getting shocked by it. But it, it just takes it to a new level. So I can understand it, but I think we've always got to be responsible as, as adults and as people who are ageing to let young people express their realities and actually take that seriously. So I think that that's the flip side of it, that even if it's shocking, it's still worth listening to. Why do you think people in positions of authority, so for example, the police and the government, why do you feel like they have tried to put a ban on your music? I know that was like quite a thing for a, a hot sec. I think it's worth saying that it hasn't gone anywhere. It's just that we've become distracted with the coronavirus. I can tell you for a fact that all of that stuff has only got worse. It might be that, you know, some of the biggest artists have blown up and, and, and gone clear, but that stuff's still happening. I'm being, I'm literally this week been asked to go to prepare a report for a court case where they're using drill videos and lyrics as evidence to prove that this person is in a gang. This is happening in court cases all over the country. So there, it's still a madness, that's my point. So the reason why, let's say a police officer wants to try and prove that someone they suspect is doing something wrong and then they come across a song where that person is talking all about that activity that they're trying to prove that they're doing wrong. Needless to say, that is going to start becoming difficult for the person who's making the music to separate from their, from actually what's happening in real life. They're going on a track and saying all this stuff. So I can understand from law enforcement why they would then take those videos and take those lyrics and try and use them as evidence of 
forming a character out of, of what someone might be like. The problem is that, uh, certainly from my experience, a lot of the time this music, although some of it definitely references specific things and references individuals and references, you know, people that have died, and, and I think in some cases those those should be banned and should be taken down, actually. It's a very, it's a very small minority where that's actually happening and where it can be proven that that's what's happening. And so what you see is a lot of, I think a lot of police officers just using the music as a way of basically hitting a certain demographic, your poor black men are basically saying that these guys are criminals, therefore we should lock them up more. You know, that's why it's happening. I think in some ways it's fair enough. If you're getting on a track and you're spitting all sorts of specific stuff about stuff you've done, you can't really blame someone for then listening to it and then taking it seriously. That's what you're trying to get people to do. But I think where it spills into being difficult is that a lot of the music actually isn't that and it is being used as that. Kieran has been building the Roadwatch project to create a new, what he calls, Joe I see you made a course called Roadworks, right? To help educate young people through the medium of drill. The guys that actually went on the course, they looked like they actually came out to do great things. So Mm. what made you want to do it? And how successful has it been since your first pilot? By last summer, I'd spent a good two, two and a half years researching, writing about, just doing so many different things related to drill and rap that, that, wrote about the music so people could learn about it, but also used it a lot in my youth work. I felt like I'd said my piece as a writer about the music. And I was like, I want to take all this energy and all the contacts I have and all the people that know my name from writing. And I'm trying to dump that all into my youth work now. So Roadworks was that. It was that me being like, you know what? I'm going to double down on social impact now. When the lockdown came, obviously we produced um, Drillosophy episodes, which was basically us, Reveal and I, my co-founder, us being like, wait a second, we're in lockdown, we're in our living rooms. How can we respond to this moment using all of these resources that we have? Like I've got, I've got a whole Google Drive full of interesting musical resources that can engage hard to reach young people. For me, the long-term aim is to prove that creative ways of engaging with young people need to be taken seriously. That's how you're going to stop exclusions. It's how you're going to stop violence is by making sure we're continuing those conversations with people. Whilst we did the Roadworks pilot, up until that point, I'd not really spent any time in a studio. Like, I'd written a lot about this music. I listened to it a lot. I've listened to music throughout my life. I've, I feel like I have a really deep understanding about music culture, especially rap and hip-hop and London music. But doing that Roadworks pilot and then having since then gone into studios and, like, been there whilst artists are, are like, making their music, I feel like it has opened up a whole new world of understanding its power. What do you think needs to be done for people to get a better understanding of drill as a, as a genre? The more stuff that goes onto the internet that is thought through and sensitive and, and compassionate, the more that you're contributing towards, I think, a, a social good. Fortunately, my writing sort of took off on drill and it meant that I was able to advocate for people in Parliament or I was, I was able to go on BBC News and be like, look, this is this more complicated than just stabbing. The second thing is I feel like those of us youth workers, teachers... Those of us who are in a position where we're connected with young people as well as able to maybe influence curriculums and policy, we need to be bridging those gaps. So getting young people into spaces where they can actually like make change to policy. And I write about this in my book a lot. Um, and yeah, we need to be bringing some of those conversations and lyrics into the classroom as well. Not just Not just letting the powers that be define what we're teaching, but also playing with it a bit and being experimental. I think that we have a responsibility to do that now because we're losing too many young people to, and like, it's clearly not working. So 
we, we, we need to be creative with it. The culture surrounding Joel gets a lot of bad rap and it's often looked down on. So as Kieran says, how can we get creative with it? I got in touch with Shango and Mac, who are making waves in the music scene, fusing their backgrounds in jazz and classical music with drill to create a new super genre, jazz drill. Could they be expanding the drill community? I'm Matthew, also known as Mac. I'm 22 and I'm from South London, Peckham. And I'm partnered with Shango and we make jazz drill. My name is Deji. I also go by Shango. I play the saxophone, 21 years old, from Bermondsey. Tell us a little bit more about the name Shango. There's quite a long story behind it, actually. And um, it starts from when I was about 16 years old and I was going through a phase where I had, like, a philosophical or spiritual awakening, you could could say, Mm. at the time. I wanted to mark what had happened to me psychologically by having a name that corresponded to it. So I was watching this fellow cootie um, documentary called Sorrow, Tears and Blood, and I saw the name Shango on his shrine. He had a shrine and all the different Nigerian gods and, like, Malcolm X and all these other people that he really revered in the shrine that he used to worship. And I saw that name and it really stuck out to me, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So let me do a bit more research into that. Then I found out it was the Nigerian Orisha of thunder and fire. And at the time, I thought I was my granddad reincarnated, which I don't believe right now, but <laughs> at, the time, at the time, I thought my granddad reincarnated. And my granddad, uh, my, my people in my family always used to tell me stuff about there being, like, thunder when um, my granddad passed and all that type of stuff. And it turns out that my granddad's Orisha head was actually Shango, which I didn't know at the time. So it all ties in together. But yeah, that's how I came about the name Shango. And what about you, Master Mac? Where did your artist name come from? Yeah, it's a little bit more basic. Mac is just my initials. Literally, M-A-C. I'm actually going to plug that email. Swear. Yeah. Yeah, it's literally just my initials. So I just decided to run with that. I like like the sound of Mac and... I use a Mac yeah. computer as well, so... <laughs> How would you define jazz drill? I think, as all sound is, it's, it's beyond definition. That, that's that's almost the mm. point of it. But it's kind of really yeah. hone it. But and... to give a picture of it, it's a mixture of classical music, jazz music, drill music, quite heavily, bringing those three worlds together, but then also delving into other things like electronic-style music. But the thing is, why, why I started by saying it's hard to define is because where we're going with this music is going into so many different pockets of sound that not all of it would even necessarily fit under like the classical idea that people think of when they hear jazz and drill. There's loads of different things that we're going for. But, yeah, in a nutshell... It's mixing jazz, classical music, and drill music all together. It was um, it was pretty natural because like Deji, he's he's a practicing jazz musician, and I'm a practicing classical pianist. So I play a lot of classical music, and, and I, I, we kind of brought our two worlds together. So the backstory behind that, we met at college, and we were studying a lot of these things. We were studying like jazz and and classical music, Mozart and so on. We were heavily involved with, yeah. like, drill music as well, like, yeah. listening to it at the time because it was heavily popular. Yeah. So we're like, what would happen if we fused, like, these sounds together? Like, what could we create? And mm. we were kind of, like, wild children, you know, like, in terms <laughs> of exploration. We just wanted to, like, do anything that was divergent. Yeah, that's kind of how it 
it came to be like the initial concept of it you know just from our different worlds and bringing our different worlds together yeah it was definitely just a natural consequence of what we were into because i love drill music i love jazz music only made sense to put the two things together and i used to like play over drill beats as well when i was at university because i'll be chilling with people and i'm like you know i want to practice a bit and they're playing the drill beats in the back and i'm just playing over it and i was like you know what i might as well record this so yeah it was a natural consequence of the worlds that were involved in musically do you feel like your music is challenging the concept of these two genres? I think that's that's one thing that we're very grateful for, to be able to fuse the two worlds authentically because we're coming from both worlds. A lot of cats, they try and make it like a jazz trap thing and it just sounds kind of whack if I said all this. But like, when you come from like both of the worlds no authentically... Shade, no shade. Yeah, no, no shade, shade to like anyone in particular, you know what I mean? But I've, I've heard some stuff where it's trying to fuse it and it's just like... I don't know about that, but but when you're coming from the two worlds authentically, um, then it would just it would just happen, I guess. I mean, I'm fortunate for that to give a different image to drill music as well, which is cool. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. That was a, a target that we actually did have, like coming into it, like changing perspectives mm. and and uniting two different worlds together. It's bringing the you know. the ghetto to the gallery and the gallery to the ghetto. Mm. <laughs> so that's really yeah. I like yeah. That Drill gets a lot of negative media attention. What's your views on that? It depends, like, what standpoint you're looking from, you know. Um, in terms of, like, the actual culture of Drill and what it's doing for the artists um, and the different people that are actually involved, it's, it's wholly positive. It's, it's giving them a means to make themselves self-sufficient, you know, and, mm. and express themselves in a way. A legal way as well, which is very way. important. So from that standpoint, yes, I feel like it's wholly positive. But from an outsider's perspective, where they're just solely listening to the content of it, I can see why they would think that, yeah, this is something that needs to be restricted or filtered in a way. But how can you filter expression? Like, what place does someone have to tell you like you shouldn't say this or that if it's someone's truth you know I, I wouldn't tell someone to like not say certain things if that's what they've lived you know yeah I'm with Matt on like I'm completely anti-censorship you shouldn't censor art at all doesn't make sense it's like the, the purest form of suppression which ends up augmenting whatever problems you're trying to get rid of but at the same time though you've got to admit that a lot of drill music is just like crazy <laughs> nihilistic it is, it is. like I've heard some like crazy drill track and you mm. can't be you can't be shocked when people are like oh this is this is negative I've heard some people um, end up going on the road because they want to be a drill rapper stuff like that so, so I, I can see both sides of it yeah. but that's like everything in life there's going to be the negative and the positive it's a duality it, yeah there's a duality exactly and you can't you can't just it's not simple it's never simple with anything you know what I mean and it's drill is another example where a lot of positive things are coming out of it mm. loads of people being able to economically liberate themselves in a legal way loads of people being able to express their experience and also people learning about what it's like to live that life when like they have no information about it. it's like it, it opens up all these different conversations but at the same time there's definitely the drawbacks of the music you can't mm. I'd be lying if I said there was nothing negative about it you know what I mean yeah, 100%. but I think that's another big impetus for us to be making the music to just give it an, a whole nother spin because now like I've sent this music like the jazz drill music to people from all different walks of life who wouldn't be listening to drill normally 
and I, I feel grateful to be able to do that. And they actually understand yeah. it. Yeah. And translate, you know. But yeah. you know, there's also like a, another part of it. There's a responsibility of the artist. You have to be careful with certain things you say because people are easily influenced, you know. 100%. So, do you think we need more music creators that are open to different genres and mixed genres? 100%. I mean, the thing is, even if I say I think we need more, it is going to happen anyway. There's literally no way. Yeah. There's just too many creatives, too many artists mm. for it not to happen. It's just too statistically likely that it will happen. And, yeah, I think it's beautiful to see people mix in two different worlds. Like, right now, there's going to be a sound in 10 years that we have not conceived of. But it's like it's waiting yes. to be realized, like it's here, but just no one is hearing it yet. Yeah, I, I just I would encourage everyone to just mix up, just mash it up, man. Smash it up. <laughs> we'll hear more about Joel within the communities in a moment from Relly and Crystal. But first, Alice, our correspondent in Manchester, has been investigating a collective of female and non-binary DJs and looking at the space Partisan, which has been creating its own community. The birth of dance music took place in Chicago and Detroit in the 80s, where genres such as techno and house took influences from 1970s disco to create hard-hitting sounds that were pumped out in underground clubs. The genres made their way to the UK in the 1980s and paved the way for the rise of acid house. The electronic dance music scene was thriving in the UK, and by the 90s, dance floors were filled with ravers swinging their arms and legs not only to acid house, house and techno, but also to jungle, hardcore and breakbeat. Despite the growing love for the genre and the strong communities that had formed in the scene, not all felt the same. Some newspapers have called acid house music a sinister and evil cult which lures young people into drug taking. Well, well those that take it want to be, oh, be ashamed well, of themselves. Probably out of control. Acid house music, I assumed it was something to do with the drug scene. The scene continued to get a bad rep due to drug use and a drug-related death in 1996 led to the government introducing the Drug Misuse Bill. The club had been warned before and hadn't done enough to prevent drug use. The subcommittee decided that revocation of the licence is both appropriate and proportionate. This negative attitude towards dance music and its club culture is still prevalent. People in the industry have been given more of a voice to oppose sensational stories. But if dance music is talked about in the media, it tends to focus on drug taking in a sensationalist way. The dance music scene is far from perfect, with gender inequality, race inequality, and drug taking being a big problem. It's extremely important to talk about these issues, but the mainstream media isn't discussing them, especially drug taking in an effective way. We also need to shine a light on those within the dance music community that have a love for the scene and are determined to positively impact the space and give back to society. My name is Alice and I'm a DJ based in Manchester. Manchester is infamous for its music scene and of course its rave culture. In this segment, I want to report on three Manchester-based female and non-binary DJ collectives that are tackling issues of gender and race inequality within the dance music industry. Let's kick things off with an interview with Romy, the co-founder of the collective Shifting Spheres. I'm Romy, my DJ name is Mystique, and I'm part of the collective Shifting Spheres. I'm one of the co-founders along with my mate, Rach. 
I wanted to start a collective that was doing regular workshops and then building towards doing an extended workshop program. The motivation behind that was um, similar to a lot of collectives like Equalizer and Leeds who was doing it around that same time too, to create a safe space for women, trans and non-binary individuals who wanted to start doing DJing where they could feel confident, not intimidated and ultimately have fun and just meet other people in that work. That was the, the main reason behind it because obviously there's a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and these kinds of collectives doing these workshops and similar networking events like this is such a great help to boosting people's confidence. And it's just incredible seeing people that came to the first workshops doing their DJ thing right now, having radio appearances and DJing out and stuff. And it's like, sick, like good for you. So not only have you guys been hosting workshops, but in July you released an EP called Fears of Sound. What was the motivation behind this? Spheres of Sound was the compilation that we came up with because not only did we want to raise money for the two incredible causes that we chose, which was Roshni Birmingham and UK Black Pride, but also just on a deeper level, we wanted to create a space for women and non-binary producers where they could produce and feel comfortable releasing tracks. It's a big step releasing your first track because there was quite a few first timers on there, including myself. And a lot of gatekeeping once again, especially even more so in the production community. And that doesn't even take into account non-binary and trans individuals as well. We wanted to just create a space for that and show that there are amazing women and non-binary producers and master engineers and artists and everything was done by women and non-binary people. So next time somebody's like, oh, I'm looking for a woman or non-binary producer. Oh, but there's barely any. And I'm just thinking, well, you need to just look a little harder or actually try and find them because there's loads. Similarly to Shifting Spheres, the collective All Hands on Deck are known for their DJ workshops, which are aimed at underrepresented groups in the scene. I had the chance to speak to member Anna about their open deck nights. My name's Anna. I'm, I'm part of All Hands on Deck. We are a DJ collective for women, non-binary and trans DJs in Manchester. We're an open deck party and we're a collective and we prioritise opportunities for further underrepresented groups. So um, BIPOC, like disabled people, people on low income um, and LGBTQIA+. Our home is uh, Partizan. Partizan is like a DIY arts venue. The whole idea of the space is that it raises money through the events and the arts music events that it runs and then all of that money goes directly back into the space so that it can stay open and it can provide free space for different social justice groups. A couple of examples be Women Asylum Seekers Together and Safety for Sisters. Every single event that we run acts as like a fundraiser. Why did you guys decide to start hosting Open Debt Nights? Me and um, the three others, so Tracy, Sophie and Rosa, all met at Partizan. We were involved in the space kind of quite organically. I think it was 2018. One of the people who started Partizan um, got asked to DJ at this party at the old Abbey Tap House. And it was a fundraiser for like the Rojava conflict. They wanted an all-women lineup, And she was like, I don't know how to mix at all. They've asked me to play. I'm going to do it. Me and Tracy would like been to a DJ workshop at Partizan we were like maybe we should do it went there it was like the most low pressure thing that we've ever done you know it was all about raising money it wasn't really about 
the tunes at all. But it was such a nice atmosphere that we kind of from then were like, we should do this. We should give like people an opportunity to play out um, that maybe like wouldn't get to, maybe like aren't running their na- their own nights and stuff like that. Um, try and make it like really beginner friendly unless you're already a promoter playing out is really difficult it is a really male dominated industry obviously a lot of promoters are men as well and there's a lot of kind of like gatekeeping involved we kind of thought right if we run this open decks everybody who enters that space as an audience member is aware of what what we're trying to do here participants not only get the chance to play out but also welcome to the all hands on deck collective and their facebook group where they offer out opportunities for bar gigs, radio and events. Yeah, I think just anything that can kind of like work to break any of those dynamics down is a positive thing. Having that kind of having representation as well, I think is really important. Finally, I spoke to Martha, who is the manager for Not Bad For A Girl. We spoke about why she decided to form The Collective and the recent fundraising live stream they hosted. I basically have been working in the music industry for three years and found myself predominantly working with men. And that wasn't because there were no women who wanted to be in positions of power, but it was mainly because it was just not a very welcoming space. So I decided that I was going to find all these cool women that I had previously worked with and knew were like incredibly talented and put us together and um, create this collective that's actually turned into more of a family. In May, you hosted a four-day live stream festival. What was your aim for this? Um, What impact do you think it had? So what we actually did was we um, collected donations throughout for Save Our Scene, which is an organisation, like it's a charity that's been set up to pay the salaries of people who aren't getting the money that they would normally be getting through lockdown, like sound technicians and DJs and um, helping out clubs so that they don't go under. I think we wanted the diversity of the people who were getting involved in the festival as well. We wanted to really reach out to other creative communities and bring them in and give them a platform to sort of express themselves and what they did. We had acts ranging from yoga every morning to every kind of different genre of DJ and comedy acts, drag makeup tutorials, like just the whole, everything you could possibly imagine in one place, which was great. Um, But it basically meant I didn't sleep for four days. But I would do it all again. And I think it was a really lovely community experience. And it really seemed to positively affect the mental health of the people who were involved in it as well. We kept getting these messages through it saying, like, it was amazing to have something creative to do and to feel like I was contributing to a whole in a way that I haven't felt like for a really long time. It really made it, like, such a special experience for all of us, I think, because suddenly we didn't feel like we were trapped in our box rooms. We were sort of connecting with 75 people on a daily basis, making art and also contributing to our community. These Manchester-based collectors have organised fundraising events, EPs, DJ workshops and open deck nights, hoping to positively impact the dance music community. But the mainstream media still fixates on certain topics in a superficial way. What impact has this had on the scene? I mean, obviously you're, you're trying to sell papers, right? Or you're trying to sell your platform so you have to go for like sensationalist stuff and what I see reported a lot over some of the more positive aspects is drug use in um, dance music events I think that's an incredibly important issue and I think that it's great that it is high profile I think it's often sensationalized so it will be about telling a dramatic story rather than preemptive ways we can help 
But I also think that it sort of negates, it, it becomes what a lot of people think that the entire industry is about. And that really does negate what all of these positive things, like all of the like help that the community can do. And I would love to see more of the more pro-dance music articles coming out talking about like the, the stuff that we do for charity because everyone I know who's a promoter has done at least five charity shows in the past year and like other things like that ways that we do genuinely like give back the mainstream media doesn't really pay much attention to us unless it is something bad and I think it's been that way for a long time obviously the history of raving in this country the fact that it was banned in terms of what we do in our little event space. I don't feel like there is much mainstream coverage of it at all, really. Obviously, there's great music websites like DJ Mag and Mix Mag that sort of write articles about our grassroots scene. It's always looked at in kind of like, yeah, economic terms. It's never like the value of like actually um, like the culture around it and the communities that form around it. Dance music is something that's a little bit forgotten because I suppose not every single person in society partakes in it. But for the percentage of people that do, it's a really big part of our lives. I wish there was more focus on us, but, you know, at the same time, we kind of need to get our heads out of the sand and realise that the big, wide world of dance music beyond us needs a lot more fixing than we probably even realise because of the little echo chamber that we exist in. Drug taking is a serious issue and the industry faces huge amounts of gender and race inequality. But there are people and communities within the scene that are tackling these problems head on, whilst also not forgetting the positives that it can bring. Like the social element um, is a big thing. It's such a organic way to kind of like spend time with, meet a lot of different types of people, make friends over like shared interests in music and stuff like that. The feeling of being at the rave and just letting loose and forgetting about what's going on in life or the outside world, just dancing. dancing, dancing, dancing. Um, when you go to like an amazing events, um, where there's a community feel and especially in our underground scene where it's a safe space and also just a great place to socialize and meet like-minded people. Dance music and its club culture means so much to many, including myself. It's a space that allows me to disconnect from the outside world, live in the moment, and dive into a shared community experience of loving music. I hope that this segment will help people see beyond the sensationist portrayal of dance music and understand the community spirit that exists and the positive work being done by grassroots artists. That segment was put together by Alice Reed, our correspondent up in Manchester. It feels good to hear from femme DJs changing the way we think about underground music. When it comes to Jill, there's no doubt that Kieran's been doing the same. Do you feel like there is many positives behind your music? And if so, what are they? I think there's lots of ways you can frame it, but I've kind of condensed it down to three. So the first one is that it's a form of catharsis, so it's a form of therapy. And this is obviously not just contained to drill, this is just art. And it's and, it, and it, I say in particular hip-hop, because obviously it sort of speaks to a certain experience of racism, of um, existing in an underclass, of being in the inner city and surviving. So there's a catharsis involved in rapping, and there always has been since the 70s, where young artists artists in general can step into a recording booth or get on stage speak their truth and then that's actually a form of healing for a lot of what they've experienced well man then it's just really telling their story really some of them are some of them aren't but you never know who's really telling the truth or not but really that 
it's what they live in it so can't really judge a man for it in the uk it's worth focusing on that all of the support systems that might have provided that catharsis do not exist now or have been decimated so youth services have been decimated maybe you've stabbed someone maybe you've been dragged into some awful awful thing that's happened to you or your friend and you're stressed or maybe you're you haven't eat you haven't eaten because there's no food on the table at home there's just like the trauma of poverty but there isn't there isn't any space in schools to talk about that there isn't there's very little space in the nhs to talk about that because mental health services for young people have been decimated so actually the music has become a form of catharsis for that experience so i think that it's it's a survival it's a form of survival second thing is it's a way of generating careers and that's not just as a rapper or a producer that's as a social media manager an artist manager people doing pr videographers video editors all these different people that places like Mixtape Madness, Finesse Forever, you know, these places that have managed to harness those different skill sets into like a genuine movement of how to like provide opportunities for young people. If you're a young person that doesn't have any GCSEs, but you know your music, you could probably be quite good at your job. And then the third thing I'd say is that it has become like a political voice. So it's, it's actually created political change. And I'm not saying that drill artists are politicians. I'm just saying that. And I know the drill minister exists, but I, I wouldn't, you know, he doesn't represent the whole drill scene. So I'm saying that the music, consciously or not, has become like a political voice. I've been invited to Parliament to talk about drill. I've been able to go there as a youth worker and advocate for young people because this music exists. So it's broken down barriers. It's broken down barriers. And I think that that's another advantage. It's actually got on people's radar. It might have shocked people, but it's shown people like this is what people are going through. So. But what they're saying is true or not, it happens. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Whether yeah. they're saying they've done it or not, it happens in life. So people shouldn't really be thinking about, right, did this person actually do it or They should actually be talking on behalf of someone that doesn't have a voice. Yeah. Because a lot of these bando youths, they can't talk about what they do because they'll get sent to prison. Like a lot of the jewel rappers that are boys and up now, they can talk about it because they can like say it's creativity and they're making up a story. Do you get know what I mean? Mm. Girls can do the same thing. That's what they say. Girls can't do drill. Girls can't know what happens in a bundle. And they think that we have to live or be in the bundle to know what's actually going on when we've got people around us that are living that kind of life and they go through it. Since I was like doing poetry and stuff, a lot of the parents that were sitting in the audience would go up to my mum, go up to my teachers come to me sometimes and say, like, they would ask me, like, what have I been through and stuff. More time, I haven't been through nothing that I've written a poem about. Mm. I've just, like, taken someone else's experience and I've given them a voice. And a lot of the parents and a lot of the students used to say, like, bro, like, you must have lived my life for me. Do you know mm. what I mean? So, like, since then, I feel like I do try to use my music to give people voices. As Crystal says, representation and community are really important parts of dual culture. It shows us that the media stereotypes around dual music are missing a big part of the picture. Let's let Shango and Mac round up on how their music is making positive impacts in their community. Do you think your genre represents your community and how? Yeah, I think it does, definitely. Definitely. Um, I was just saying earlier, like, we're bringing all the different worlds together, like, what we're from, you know? So, definitely our community, like, I feel like we're representing and and making known and bringing them together, you know? So... Mm. I think I think the biggest reason why it represents, like, our community and, and where we come from and the people that we know and that type of stuff is, like, growing up, being from South London, there's obviously the perception 
especially like looking like how me and Matt look. It's like, oh yeah, we're probably just gonna be not not interested in like complicated subject or whatever. You know what I mean? Like we're just gonna be like trying to just live like do on road. very base yeah do road basically that's what I was trying to say ultimately but but like but like is is where we come from there's a man that are very very intelligent, intelligent. very intelligent, intelligent and they'll have a very deep conversation with you about philosophy and even science and all these different all these different um, concepts simply because of how they're boxed in because of how our brains want to categorise shit mm. they're not always able to show that side of them but with jazz drill it's like we're showing we're coming from we got the drill like it's, it's got the ends mentality but then we're also bringing all these other elements into it which is yeah which yeah. I think represents Hopefully that that will start like a a sort of behavioural trend where people feel open to express that different sides of them. Like, a lot of these, a lot of guys that I know from ENDS have, like, backgrounds where they've delved into, like, different sort of arts that they're not really open to sharing. Like, I know a few people that used to play instruments and, like, violin and so on, and now they're doing road or they're, yeah. they're out here, innit, as you say. But I want them to be able to be comfortable with mm. showing their skills, mm. showing their smarts and being able to yeah. to feel like that's cool, that's a that's that's a thing to be, you know. Yeah, so, man. Not restricting their humanity, yeah. ultimately. So would you say as your genre blows up, would you wanna give back to your community? I definitely think like both of you like playing the instruments that you play. I wouldn't say it's not um like regular, but you know, like I'm telling you, I don't think I've met any boys that play any instruments so like would you like use that as a way to give back to your community as such definitely um especially in like the form of teaching for me personally i want to give back by teaching and and teaching younger people and, and bring out the next generation of of musicians you know teach them like the different philosophies of life through music and and so on yeah hundred you know. percent I mean, we've been doing... I mean, we're going to actually start doing some workshops with some kids from Lambeth mm-hmm. and that type of thing, so... Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. Wow! Big up you, though! <laughs> no, that's actually really good! Thank you. Thanks. There's new music coming out Definitely. every yeah. single time. You won't, always, be, you won't be in need of anything, man. There's music it's coming it's out it's all the time. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's coming, man. <laughs> Thanks so much to our guests, Kieran Thapper, Rele and Crystal, and Shango and Mac. You've been listening to The Higher Frequency with me, Jade Barnett. Our correspondent was Alice Reed, and this episode was produced by Tara Lily Klein. It is a bold face production for youth music in partnership with Notion, led by Femi Oriogan Williams. Next time on The Higher Frequency. It is really important to me that the artist is emotionally raw and vulnerable, especially LGBTQ artists and me being part of that community. My name is Melina Simonson. And I'm Liv Kisby. In this episode, we're going to be reflecting on how music can challenge our preconceived notions of gender and identity. Today, we're joined by Girly, a genre-bending alternative pop musician from London. I'm not, like, trying to be, like, super quirky. (laughs) This is just my sexuality. And Grove 
a genderqueer producer and vocalist from Bristol. In terms of being free from like patriarchal uh, environment, usually I feel that benefits not only non-men, but all marginalized people. With Girly and Grove, we explore power, identity, performance, and social media, all in relation to gender, sexuality, and music. Sorry, like, sorry, we're gonna have to cut you off there.